This reboot of Political Climate is brought to you in partnership with Canary Media. Canary Media is an independent, non-profit news outlet covering the economy-wide shift to a decarbonized economy and society. You can check out our latest news at canarymedia.com and subscribe to our daily newsletter. Is this thing on? Check. Check one, two. All right. I think we're back. We're back. Welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world. Presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and as in the past, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Brandon's here beside me in Los Angeles, California. It's been a while. The band is back together. The band is back together. How are you? It's been a, it's been a minute. This is so awesome. I can't wait to get rolling here. I know. Shane, how are you? I'm good. This is so much fun. I actually like was a little nervous a couple hours ago, which obviously I didn't get You know, doing this for years, and I was going to make a joke and be like, Brandon, I haven't seen you in... Like 30 minutes when we were working on something earlier. <laughs> Julia, good, to, good to see you too, that we've been in good touch, but it still seems weird to have been off the air for so long. It totally does. So weird, in fact, that it took us about 30 minutes to get the tech system back up and running, but that's cool. We're back at it and we're super happy to be recording again. There's been so much action on climate and energy policy that just I'm excited to dig in with you guys and you know find out what you're hearing and where things are going. But as you just alluded to there, Shane, you and Brandon now work together. You know, our titles have all changed actually since we last recorded uh, earlier this year, I guess January. And so for those who may not know, you know, Brandon Hurlbut is a former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under President Obama. He's a clean energy investor and founder of the public policy consulting firm, Boundary Stone Partners. And Shane, you are a former energy advisor to Representative Paul Ryan. You have many years of experience on the Hill, and now you are a senior vice president at Boundary Stone Partners. So, you know, why did you hire Shane, Brandon? Uh, How did a Democrat Republican come to work together? Well, we had so much fun doing the podcast together. And Sort of like the great mergers of all time, Disney, Pixar, LeBron, and D. Wade, Kevin Durant, and Steph Curry coming together. We just wanted to uh, dominate together. So uh, we wanted to form a dream team. And uh, no, in all seriousness, um, you know, uh, I've gotten to know Shane so well, and he has tremendous uh, energy expertise and uh, knows the Hill uh, so well. And with everything that's happening uh, in D.C. on climate policy, I just wanted to work more closely with him. That's awesome. One of the great mergers of all time. Shane, what are your thoughts? Tell us about your new role. Yeah, no, it's been awesome. Um, Brandon and I have been looking for ways to work together for a while. We've actually done you know, smaller projects together when, when I had my firm, STC Pacific, uh, with my partners. And so our, our smaller firm, um, Patrick Courier and I specifically, finally had an opportunity to work with Brandon and his team at Boundary Stone. Boundary Stone was growing tremendously, as you know, and all of our listeners know, there's really never been a better time for clean energy legislating. But then also after that, there's going to have to be a lot of implementation. And I've learned so much from Brandon uh, and his team also about you know, what actually happens to these laws after they get passed. We're always so focused on you know, the dynamics on Capitol Hill. You want good policy, but you want to also make sure that you have the votes lined up. But after that, you know, I didn't have a lot of hands-on experience. And so Brandon, obviously running DOE, uh, the Department of Energy, has had a ton of experience you know, implementing these programs that Congress creates and executing on them. And so, you know, we like to, to talk about this stuff. We like to work together in theory. And, and now uh, when the opportunity arose to work together in practice, uh, I jumped at it. 
and you know, like I said, I, I think the scariest part about all of this was learning how much that I thought I knew that I didn't know about, you know, what happens in the White House and, and on the administrative side. So it's just been really cool, really exciting. And, and there's never been a better time to be working in our space. Really, really fun stuff. Awesome. Well, I have to say that I changed roles as well. I uh, left the journalism world. Sold out. Oh, I know. But not really, because I joined a clean energy financing company, which is totally helping accelerate the clean energy transition. I am now officially the vice president of communications and policy at Goodleap, which is actually the nation's leading financier of solar and other sustainable home solutions like heating systems and batteries and geothermal for the home. So we're really trying to go at the whole home problem and help decarbonize. So it's been super interesting to be on that side of it, having spent the decade in journalism. But I'm excited excited to be back on the airwaves because this gets to like scratch my journalism itch and like hold these conversations and I'm going to maintain my moderator role. You know, I'm not here speaking for Good Leap or for anyone else. It's really just to speak with you guys and the guests we have on and facilitate some good conversations. So um, I'm excited about that. Also, I have to say we are working with my former colleagues uh, from Green Tech Media who have now put together an incredible newsroom at Canary Media. They are providing the news and analysis in ways that we just hadn't been able to before. So huge kudos to that group. Uh, so exciting to see Canary Media just dominating and giving us a lot of great coverage that we need in the world today. Uh, so deep appreciation for the Canary Media team. We are thrilled to be partnered with them on this podcast reboot. Okay, so... What are we doing here? There's a lot to discuss. And to set the tone, I want to say that we are taking a different tack with this reboot of political climate. There will be less debating of Republican versus Democrat macro politics and more of a focus on educational content. And we're going to speak specifically to the climate and energy policies that are being contemplated and enacted and talk more about how they'll affect humanity and our planet at the end of the day. So this type of action, I think we can say, just wasn't really happening in 2019 and 2020 when we were all on the airwaves. Um, I do want to say I think we had a lot of great conversations. I learned a ton from you guys. But I think this change of tone um, will just really sort of speak to the moment. And there's so much to talk about. So, you know, I want to get your guys thoughts on that. Does it feel like, you know, the political climate has changed and thus political climate, the podcast has changed? Well, this is the show we've always wanted to do. We wanted yeah. to cover climate policies, pull back the curtain from people that have been in D.C., been behind the scenes and try to explain and make sense of all this for our listeners. And they're just, as you said, Julie, I mean, during the campaign, there wasn't a lot of substantive things <laughs> happening on climate, you know, in the presidential campaign. So uh, now uh, with all the action in DC, we're really hoping to have people take away tangible lessons from the show. For sure. Shane, any initial thoughts? Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's really easy to be for something or against something, right? No matter what your you know point of view is on any particular policy or any political issue, it's easy to say, I'm, I'm all for this, I'm against this. What's really cool now is you're looking at you know two different programs. One of them, the Senate passed $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill that does include an energy title with you know robust investment in a lot of sectors. And then there's the reconciliation legislation that's just sort of beginning to formulate um, that's going to have a lot more clean energy, both on the tax side and you know from a, a, an energy policy uh, perspective, or at least you know spending on things that facilitate energy policy. And so this is where all the experience really pays off. You don't have to have you know, 10, 15 years experience in energy policy to have an opinion on something. Everyone has an opinion on something. But it's been really fun working with um, other advocates, um, you know, environmental groups, business groups, uh, Senate staff, House staff, uh, administration staff on actually getting down to the nitty gritty of what do we actually want to achieve? What are the best ways to achieve that? Which statutes currently exist? 
Where do we need additional authority? How would you implement this from an administrative standpoint? And really sitting down and like Brandon said, not arguing about my side does it better, your side does it better, but let's go do this right. Let's do it correctly. And this will you know, kick off decades of investment in clean energy technology that'll bring about some of the climate solutions we've all been working towards. Well, with that, let's jump into the action on Capitol Hill. So if you tried to take a vacation in August, uh, I'm sorry, it was probably ruined. Um, if you care about policy anyway, uh, there was so much happening. So quick recap here uh, to some of the things uh, that Shane just alluded to. So on August 10th, the Senate passed a trillion-plus bipartisan infrastructure bill and a budget resolution that paved the way for Democrats' $3.5 trillion spending package. That's the package that's expected to include things like Medicare expansion, extensions of household tax credits, universal pre-K, among numerous other climate and energy-related policies. Passing the infrastructure bill with support from 19 Republicans, including Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, was a win for President Biden. He had resisted pressure to give up on the bipartisan talks, so that was a big deal for him and moderates among the Democrats as well. However, it almost immediately triggered a showdown in the House, where Speaker Nancy Pelosi refused to take up the bipartisan infrastructure bill without also passing the Democratic spending package. Then a game of political chicken ensued with a group of moderate Democrats who did not want to pass the two pieces of legislation together. Flash forward to August 24th and House Democrats finagled an interim solution. They narrowly approved a budget resolution that provides the framework for the $3.5 trillion spending deal in a procedural vote that specifies that the House will vote on the Senate-approved infrastructure bill by September 27th. By tying the fate of these two pieces of legislation together, the upshot is that, as we record, House members have less than a month to pull together their mega spending plan and have it pass, assuming they keep the September 27th date to pass the infrastructure bill as well. So I said a lot there, a lot of nuances. Shane, you're really following this closely. I've heard this situation described recently as a black hole and the Hunger Games. What did I miss and how would you describe it? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you missed anything, but I, I think, you know, what you covered is just the reality that this is so far from over. And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I mean, there's so much work left to do. So you have the $1.2 trillion deal that's cooked. The House has to vote on that up or down. There's no room to amend that or, or sort of move provisions around or numbers around there. So put that on one side because it still has to pass. But the reconciliation bill, I think there was a lot of confusion early on about what this is and what this isn't. I don't think people fully understood, you know, if you haven't been involved in reconciliation in the past, there's a really lengthy process. And just really quickly, that's, you know, passing the budget resolution. But in order for those reconciliation instructions to be valid, both chambers have to pass the exact same budget. So that's what Julia was alluding to, you know, that occurred last week. That frees up the committees to do the work that they need to do to actually authorize the spending that would meet the numbers articulated basically in that budget or called for in that budget. Then all those bills have to go back to the budget committee in the House and the Senate, they package them all together into one big bill and then vote as a chamber. Now, unless those two bills are entirely identical, they have to conference. And so what's more likely than not is that the House and Senate will pre-conference, meaning they'll negotiate behind closed doors so they can both take one up or down vote on the same bill and not expose their members to several different votes on several different you know versions of legislation uh, that aren't you know ever going to be enacted into law. But it is a lengthy process and there's a lot of different groups. It's not like Republicans versus Democrats on the, on the budget reconciliation. It's only Democrats involved, but there's conservative Democrats, there's liberal Democrats, there's the progressive caucus, there's the mod squad, you know, that Julia was talking about. 
I know we'll talk about this a lot more, so I don't want to drone on and on and on, but you know, the last thing I'd mention, and this is where process and procedure become so important, is that the vote they took to guarantee the moderates a vote on the infrastructure package by September 27th is entirely worthless. A House resolution that's not a joint resolution with the Senate that doesn't have you know, any impact on law is just a suggestion. It's not enforceable in any way, shape, or form. The thing that makes this particular you know, goal of September 27th enforceable is that on September 30th, government funding across the entire federal government expires, meaning you would have a government shutdown if they don't pass a spending bill, and the transportation uh, surface, surface transportation reauthorization expires, meaning that you wouldn't have the legal authority to continue to give money to states you know, that, that they get to, to maintain their roads and bridges and all the other different things, medians and beautification projects that the Highway Trust Fund does. So these are very, very real deadlines based on the legislation that expires, but the, the, the negotiated deal to vote by the 27th means absolutely nothing. It's just that if they don't hold that vote, that means that the transportation bill expires. And as a result, um, they have to vote on a transportation reauthorization bill. That's a mouthful. So I'll, I'll stop there. All right. Well, let me just repeat back some of the things you said to make sure I understand it as well. So you're saying between now and September 27th, members of the House are going to pull together all of the various pieces of legislation they want to get to their currently stated $3.5 trillion deal, correct? And, and then they're going to try and conference that with the Senate at the same time or just focus in the House and eventually get to the Senate? Well, so the House is going to go through their process and each of those committees is going to mark up legislation that meets their reconciliation instructions. But that is not going to be the bill that ultimately gets a vote in the House and Senate that would be enacted into law. So that's sort of a process they have to go through to make sure that their members are heard. Uh, they do want to make sure that they're asserting themselves and the House's priorities when they go into these negotiations with the Senate. But the Senate is not going to go committee by committee like the House and vote on these bills. The Senate is going to package you know, one bill, each committee doing their role and sending it back to budget committee, but they're not going to go through that public process of holding committee hearings and committee votes. And so the House and the Senate are going to coordinate behind the scenes because at the end of the day, each of them have to pass a bill and that bill has to say the exact same thing as the other chambers. So there's, there's two ways to do that. The traditional way would be the House can pass whatever they want, Senate can pass whatever they want, and then they form a formal conference committee and the House designates uh, its designees and the Senate designates his. They negotiate a compromise between the Senate bill and the House bill. That becomes the quote unquote conference report. And then the House and Senate both vote on that report and that gets enacted into law. My understanding is no one wants to go through all that pain right now. So they're doing that negotiating behind closed doors, you know, away from the cameras. And ultimately they will come together on legislation, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that bill is going to, uh, you know, include the components that we see marked up in the House committees over the next two weeks. And this is a Democrat-only conversation, right, Shane, just on the reconciliation vehicle? Like, Republicans aren't really a part of this. This is just the Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer putting this together between the House and the Senate Democrats, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine you're ever going to get, you know, a Republican vote or any you know, counterparty vote on a reconciliation bill. So this is not, you know, Democrats trying to find a way to compromise with Republicans. This is Democrats making sure that their most progressive members and their most conservative members are able to vote on the same package because, you know, where the House Progressive Caucus is, is very different than where the House Mod Squad is. Uh, where Senator Joe Manchin is, is a very different place than Senator Sanders. And so they have to cobble all these different interests together into a bill that everyone can like. Can they physically do 
what you just said, the process of the House having their hearings and going through the motions while at the same time coordinating with the Senate behind the scenes all by this September 27th date. And I take your earlier point that that is a date that is not, uh, you know, a line in the sand. It could be moved, but it does have other repercussions in terms of other types of uh, legislation they'd have to pass, like the surface transportation reauthorization. So is it physically possible if they wanted to get it done within the month of September? It isn't, and it doesn't have to be. I mean, the Senate has been very clear that the House can go through its process, but the Senate's not going to be ready to vote by the end of September. So, you know, they are going to have to figure out by the end of September whether the House is going to take up the Senate-passed bipartisan bill, uh, and that would reauthorize the transportation programs. They're also going to have to decide if they want to, you know, pass a continuing resolution that make that ensures the government doesn't shut down on September 30th. But keep in mind, these are two different chambers, two different bodies with two different leaderships. The Senate has never said they plan to be done with work by the end of September. The House said that they would be done with their work by the end of September. But no one that I've spoken to and nothing that I've seen indicates that the Senate plans on voting on a reconciliation bill uh, by September 27th or any other time in September for that matter. So does that mean that this whole Nancy Pelosi strategy of tying the infrastructure bill that we've seen in the news with this budget reconciliation uh, package, the spending package, is that whole strategy going to fall apart then if the Senate doesn't vote similarly on the two pieces at the same time on this September time frame? So ultimately, do they get split up? And what does that then mean for the spending portion of this if the infrastructure component does indeed move forward the way that moderates want it to, including Senator Manchin and, and, and Cinema? Well, I'll take on that first piece and kick the second one to Brandon. Um, does it mean that her strategy didn't work? I think that remains to be seen. Um, they could hold a vote on the infrastructure bill. It could fail because the progressive members don't vote in favor of it and there aren't enough Republicans to cover that gap. Um, and then they could all be stuck and say, OK, we need to do some sort of surface transportation extension just to buy time. And we need to do some sort of short term government funding bill to buy time. And then they'd have to figure out a plan from there. Uh, that could very well happen if um, the House does pass the Senate bipartisan bill and that goes to the president for a signature. I'd much rather hear what Brandon has to say about you know what that looks like at that point from the administration, the House and the Senate and, and how they go about trying to pass the larger reconciliation bill once that sort of sweetener of the bipartisan bill is off the table. Sweetener or leverage or however you want to think about it. I don't know. What's your thought? If they, uh, President Biden's under pressure. We have to also note amid Afghanistan and everything else going on, COVID resurgence, to probably have a political win. So you'd think he'd want the infrastructure bill, which is widely uh, supported, to pass. But of course, that again, you know, doesn't align with Pelosi's strategy. So what do you think, Brandon? How does this play out? I think they both get done on September 27th. At least on the House side. I, I think both of these things, uh, both packages, because uh, the longer that this gets delayed, the harder it gets. And I think that there's so much writing on this uh, for, for President Biden. And I think Democrats will come together. Uh, you know, the, the House, as Shane said, just has to pass the bipartisan deal. That's done. House will pass it and the president will sign it. Uh, and I think the reconciliation package will get done at the same time um, because they understand that the midterms are a tough political environment, right? Historically, oh, the God. The, the, elections already. Yeah, the, the party in power uh, has a tough time in the midterms, right? And so you can look at it either way. You're like, look, if 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 it's going to be a challenging environment for Democrats to keep the Congress 
after the midterms, you want to get as much done right now before the Republicans take over. And you have what happened with Obama, which was our entire like congressional legislative strategy like ended in 2010 when we lost the Congress, right? Also, Democrats give themselves a better chance of winning in the midterms if they can run on both of these packages because Joe Biden can claim, I got the government to function again. I got Republicans and Democrats, that's what he campaigned on, to come together and pass massive policies that are going to help the American people. And we've been talking about infrastructure in this country for how long? It's always going to be infrastructure, infrastructure week, week, right? <laughs> and like, if he can say, I did it with Republicans, 19 Republicans, that's pretty, you know, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, or as he would say, pretty big effing deal, right? And then- It's a biff effing deal. <laughs> the bipartisan infrastructure. <laughs> right, and then- to be able to satisfy in the reconciliation package all the stuff that he campaigned on on Build Back Better plan, which we discussed many times on this show, and make you know the the progressive uh, part of the party very happy, then that's a huge achievement, and that's something that um, could help go against some of these historical you know headwinds that Democrats will be facing in the midterms. Okay, so just to tie up some some loose ends here, Shane, you said the Senate will not get this all done on the budget reconciliation side by the end of September. So say Brandon's right, the House gets all of its work done. What would then happen? It just would kick over to the Senate because and because they've been in the loop, they'll go ahead and, and pass this budget reconciliation bit of it, bit of it, big bit of it. I mean, I think what you're highlighting is is a point where Brandon and I just disagree. And so it'll be it'll be interesting to see sort of how this plays out. I think, you know, the House will do its work. Um, I don't know, you know, exactly when they'll pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill. But every indication that I've gotten is that the Senate does not concern itself um, with the House's timelines and the Senate is working through their process. Remember, the Senate is subject to the bird rule. So anyone who's been paying attention to reconciliation keeps hearing well, you can't do this because it violates the bird rule. And you can't do that because it violates the bird rule. The House isn't subject to the bird rule. So the House could pass a bill that couldn't actually legally clear the Senate, even if you know the policy was aligned. So the, it's just a lot more complicated on the Senate side than it is on the House side. The House can pass a bill that they want. A Senate has to pass a bill that they want and that they're legally permitted to pass. And so I just don't see it happening in September. I'm not even sure if I see it happening in early October. Um, I think this could run for a while. But uh, but hey, you know, I heard what Brandon said, and, and he could very well be right. If the party gets together and, and says, hey, we've got a lot going on right now in this country, we need a win, let's get a vote You know, in the next four weeks, I'm sure they could do that if that's what they decided they wanted to do. All right. Well, eyes on the 27th for uh, seeing what the House does on the budget reconciliation process. So to take a step back here, you know, we had to talk about the <laughs> inner workings that's so you know in the news, but I guess it's important to note why we care about this. So Shane, over to you on what is in the proposals that Democrats have for their spending package, this $3.5 trillion spending plan, you know, that I outlined briefly, what in there do we care about from a climate and energy perspective right now? The honest answer is, who knows? Because here's what we know for sure. There's $198 billion that's been allocated to the Senate's uh, Energy and Natural Resources Committee. Now, I'm only highlighting the Senate instead of the House, not because I think the Senate is more important. I think the House is doing some really great things. It's just because the House Energy Committee has jurisdiction over healthcare. It has jurisdiction over telecom. It has a lot wider jurisdiction. So looking at the number that they've been allocated doesn't really give an indication of how many energy dollars are going to be spent in there, whereas energy and natural resources is a little bit more focused. So they've been given $198 billion. There's the Clean Energy Payment Program, which is basically a budgetary iteration of a clean energy standard, because you can't enact a new regulatory regime through budget reconciliation, you have to find a way to make it a budget issue. 
And so the clean energy payment program, you know, by and large, and I haven't seen the, the, the text, I don't know anyone who has, but I think specifics outstanding. It gives uh, utilities a goal to get to 80% clean energy by 2030, or I shouldn't even say utilities. It's going to give some obligated parties in the energy sector a goal to reach 80% clean energy by 2030. And what that would basically mean is that you'd start where you are. So if your portfolio is 20% clean, you got to get to 80. So that means you've got to cover 60% improvement in 10 years. You'd have to go up 6% a year. If you're 40% clean, you know, that math works out very differently. And then if you reach your annual goal, so if you're 40 and you got to get to 80, so that means you go 4% a year. If you reach that 4% goal, you get a payment from the government to help offset the costs of that additional um, capacity that you've either procured or that you've built, you know, generation you've built, depending on who the recipient is. So that's going to eat up a large chunk. And the numbers, you know, being discussed are around the $150 billion range. So pausing there for a minute, you go, okay, if that's $150 billion and maybe it'll go higher, maybe it'll go lower, that leaves $48 billion for every other energy program plus natural resources. So that would include the Civilian Climate Corps and some of the other things, you know, that we've heard talking about. Um, what does that mean? You know, who knows? Uh, we've heard uh, there's going to be rebate programs for household electrification, building electrification, really good stuff. Um, maybe that's 10, 20 billion. So now you're at 170 billion. So you could play this game all day. We know what the priorities are, but we don't know exactly what they're going to be able to fit into that 198 billion. On the flip side, there's going to be a lot of energy tax work. And so again, that ambition is going to be you know, in line with whatever they can raise. The instruction to the Senate Finance Committee was to reduce the deficit by $1 billion over 10 years. So let's just assume that's zero because $1 billion over 10 years means nothing in government budgeting. Basically, they have to pass a tax package that's net neutral. Now that includes all sorts of stuff that has nothing to do with energy, you know, child tax credit, uh, what the Democrats are calling social infrastructure. I'm not going to pretend to know what all that is. But in the energy space, our understanding is that there's going to be somewhere between two and $300 billion worth of, of energy credits. And that could be investment tax credits, both for um, you know commercial and residential generation. That could be production tax credits. That could be you know new tax credits we're hearing about that incentivize domestic manufacturing of clean energy. So there's a lot of energy policy that's going to get into this reconciliation bill, but the ambition and the size and the scope of the bill is going to depend on two things. It's going to depend on how much revenue they can raise so that they can offset the tax provisions in the in the finance committee. And then it's also going to depend on what they can get the caucus behind. We've heard uh, Senator Sinema and Senator Manchin say, we're not doing 3.5 trillion. So maybe they can do 3.2. Maybe they can do 3.1. Maybe they'll only do one. I don't think anyone really knows the answers to those questions yet. Woo. Excellent explanation, first of all. <laughs> Thanks, Shane. Um, yeah, there's a lot in there. And just for those who may be following along, um, the first program you mentioned, the payment plan for clean energy, that is effectively a national clean energy standard, correct? Well, it, that was its ambition. But it just turned out that the parliamentarians gave so much feedback, there was just no way to do a clean energy standard. So what it had to turn into is how do we find a way to give people federal money, give people, I mean entities, federal money to clean their portfolios? But that could be generators, right? That could be just straight to power generators. If you generate you know, X amount, you get this. It could be what they call load-serving entities, which is what we all think of as our utilities. And they would procure that energy or generate it. Or it could be you know, anyone who consumes energy in commercial amounts, which would include load-serving entities. It would include you know, large energy buyers like your Googles and your Walmarts and your Amazons of the world. 
I don't know exactly how that's going to play out yet, but it's not written like a traditional clean energy standard would be written because you can't do that within the um, within the guidelines of the bird rule we were talking about earlier. In other words, to do this through the reconciliation process, it has to be about spending or revenue. It can't be about policy. And that's what makes it you know a little bit different than a traditional clean energy standard. Right. I think another way of looking at it is this particular program has all carrots and no sticks, or at least that's how I've heard it described, and that you can't set a policy and then require those entities to then hit a target. It's more like you can incentivize them through this spending bill to do the right thing, so to speak. Or you could potentially tax them for not doing that. Um, and, and that's just not clear where the parliamentarian will come down on that on the two-sided coin, right? Got it. So, Brandon, when you hear Shane walking through all of those things, all the things Democrats want to get done in this $3.5 trillion, but maybe $2 trillion, but maybe only $1 trillion deal, depending on what they can go for, what do you think? What do you think is going to actually end up in there? Well, I think there's a lot of fear from the climate community because in the past, climate has, uh, when there's competition amongst you know priority public policy issues, climate has been like put to the side. Um, a good example of that is when I was in the Obama administration and Waxman-Markey passed in the House, and then nothing really happened in the Senate because uh, the Obama administration is really focused on health care and getting Obamacare passed. And so I don't think that's going to happen again here for a couple of reasons. One, you know, Joe Biden campaigned very aggressively on climate. It was a huge part of his platform. That's why it was so important in all the discussions we had last year that he campaigned in a big, bold way you know, on these issues. So he has to deliver on it. Two, um, he has to go to, you know, this year there'll be another, you know, United Nations climate change conference. That's the, the conference where they pass the Paris, you know, agreement that everyone, you know, knows about. And so he has to go there and represent the United States in, in a time where like our credibility on climate in the world community was really destroyed because, you know, Donald Trump pulled us out of the Paris Treaty. And so we other, you know, we also have other issues going on like Kabul and Afghanistan. And, you know, I think people in other countries are worried about our democracy. You know, we ended the last show on a very different note, but it was, you know, we did not have a peaceful transition in this country, which is the hallmark of our democracy. And they see this anti-science strain in our country where, you know, we have the ability to get vaccinated here for COVID. Many countries do not have that, you know, but still you know, there's a good percentage of this country that will not take the vaccine because of this anti-science strain. So people around the world are wondering, is the United States going to be able to deliver on climate when they pulled out of Paris? They seem to have a significant percentage of the country that doesn't believe in science, and we're not even sure the democracy is going to survive. So that's a high bar for Joe Biden to go clear when he goes to speak to these other world leaders. So he has to have deliverables in hand on climate policy to reestablish our credibility on this issue as a world leader. Now, many of these policies that Shane talked about are really fantastic, but some of them like the civilian, you know, climate, you know, conservation core, exciting. I'm a huge supporter of it, but it doesn't do much for greenhouse gas emission reductions. So he has to like, you know, have some of these policies that actually reduce, you know, greenhouse gas and emissions. So I feel, I think he's, they're, they're going to live up to what they, um, you know, have promised on on policies and, and get a lot done in this reconciliation bill. So the snapshot there is that, I mean, obviously, President Biden would love to have wins. But as for all the reasons that Shane just walked us through, it's they're not necessarily guaranteed because there's a bunch of different perspectives within the Democratic Party. And that's not to create, you know, divisions where there aren't. But 
who do you think then gets on board? In this case, it sounds like you think the moderate Democrats will ultimately get on board with a pretty big spending package. And as long as they get infrastructure, they will align with that. Is that what you're suggesting? I, I Yeah. I mean, think about this too. This is an issue that's more prominent than ever. We have the Hurricane Ida just ravaged New Orleans again. Mm. We have people evacuating homes in California again with wildfires. We had heat domes, you know, uh, uh, causing crazy extreme heat across, you know, the Western United States over the summer. So flooding in uh, Nashville area, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. You know, so this is also a crisis now. (laughs) And I think the politicians are feeling that um, because they see it every single day on the news and people are, are, are thinking about it more than ever. All right. Both optimistic politically, but that was a terribly pessimistic note uh, on the reality that we are living in, which is sad because once you're living it, uh, it's not too late, but it's definitely an eye opener. Okay, so we talked about reconciliation a lot because that is the item that is up for, you know, it's really being teed up given that the infrastructure bill has already passed in the Senate. Um, But just to round out this discussion, Shane, could you walk us through what is in that infrastructure bill? Say Brandon's wrong and the whole budget reconciliation process, uh, the whole spending bill on the Democrat side blows up. It does not pass. We will still likely, I guess, have that infrastructure bill. What's in there that we care about? Well, there's, there's, you know, what we would consider the traditional sort of surface transportation reauthorization. So think about that as just funds for roads, bridges, um, median beautification projects, public transit, rail, um, that would go in the traditional sort of surface transportation bucket. Then there's also spending on ports and airports and other types of infrastructure that, you know, we don't necessarily interact with every day, but definitely is the physical infrastructure that, that makes our country work. Um, there's high-speed internet. So there, there was a, a lot of fighting. I don't know if folks remember if they were tracking the news, but a lot of the last second sort of fits and starts were about telecommunications policy and telecommunications funding. I'm not, you know, well steeped in the intricacies of that, but it is something that's obviously very important and, and is part of the physical infrastructure that, that ties our country together. And frankly, like, you know, if you've, the last couple of years, a lot of us have been working from home. Uh, I'm filming this podcast remotely right now. Uh, connectivity means more, you know, than it ever used to. There's also funding for electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging. And this is another space where the nuance of different sides of the conference really mattered. Because initially it was going to be, you know, $7.5 billion for electric buses and $7.5 billion for EV charging. And what actually ended up happening was there was like a $7.5 billion bucket for, you know, low emissions buses. Now, some of that money is earmarked for electric buses, but some of that could be used for hydrogen or compressed natural gas or other t- types of you know lower emissions than diesel uh, uh, vehicles. There's also the EV charging. Now, $5 billion of that, uh, to their credit, is going to go to EV charging infrastructure, but another $2.5 is going to go to, again, you know compressed natural gas infrastructure, hydrogen infrastructure, um, other types of lower than diesel emissions infrastructure. So you do have to read between the lines a little bit on this stuff, but these are still massive investments that are, that are pretty cool. Uh, then there's also $78 billion in power sector infrastructure. I don't think anyone could fully define, you know, well, you can fully define it, but I can't fully define in, in two minutes exactly what that is. There's going to be money for uh, transmission build out. Uh, there's going to be money for uh, energy system hardening and resilience, including cybersecurity. Um, and then there's a lot of uh, technology deployment funding, and that's really exciting. So that's stuff like uh, getting hydrogen costs down to, you know, competitive with other fuel sources because we can't decarbonize our heavy industry. You know, you need to carbonize transportation, all those other sectors, but heavy industry is going to need hydrogen. 
There's um, funding for direct air capture. So making sure that a lot of the missions that you know have been spewed out, looking for technologies to, to help stop that. Uh, advanced nuclear reactors are also covered. Um, what else? Um, Literally everything. <laughs> you can see yeah, how if really. they got both of these bills done, it would be huge for for climate and energy. I mean, there's just a lot across both of them. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And this demonstration funding is critically important. As Brandon can tell you better than I could from, from DOE, there's you know, R&D, and R&D is critical. Uh, but then there's how do you get this stuff to market? And a lot of these technologies, we know how they work. You don't need to do more R&D. We fully understand how to make them work. We just don't know how to make them work at commercial scale in a way that's affordable for businesses or even individuals. So these demonstration projects are critically important. And the funding that, you know, that was in this legislation uh, could go a long way in helping us decarbonize into the future. Well, one thing that I have seen sort of missed is I think some of the distributed energy solutions. Uh, I have to say this because uh, I'm not the only person. I think there's a New York Times piece about the administration not necessarily focused on more advanced technologies on the distributed side, but more so on the utility side. And to your point about transmission, that is great. The country definitely needs that. But as the New Orleans situation pointed out recently, as a transmission line fell into the river, it's not the only solution. We need these decentralized ones as well. So just a flag that I've, I've, I've heard and I've seen, you know, that that side of it, the distributed piece is somewhat missing of all the things that are being discussed right now. Um, I haven't seen a ton of leadership on that. So I don't know. I don't know if you agree there, Shane, but uh... no, yeah, I'll, I'll second you because, you know, in California, we experience wildfires constantly. Obviously, we were just talking about Hurricane Ida, but the ability to island, the ability to use power, you know, differently, the ability to generate locally um, with rooftop solar, with storage, um, with microgrids, that's actually going to be critical. That is resilience. Now, there's other ways to enhance resilience, obviously, but when you think about power sector resilience, it's if a major line goes down, does that entire you know part of the state or county or wherever you live go down? Or are there other resources that can share power, that can store power, that can generate power? So I agree with you 100%. Traditionally, you know, some of that technology has been primarily uh, funded through the tax code, but I think it is time to start thinking about you know new and creative ways in addition to tax credits to help stimulate that type of investment distributed generation and storage and distributed everything. Really, Many of those are local issues too, Julia, you know, permitting and such. Oh, yeah. Do you with the Solar public app. utilities commissions, you know, have a lot of influence over that? Yes. The state level is a whole other ballgame, which we will absolutely get into over the course of this season. Uh, but I just mentioned solar app there because the Department of Energy did develop an app that helps streamline permitting for solar and increasingly other technologies like energy storage. So there is innovation there. I just wanted to call out that amid everything else we're seeing move on the Hill, that there seems to be some lack of emphasis on these distributed solutions. However, I want to say that we really do need it all. The issue is huge. We know from the release of the UN IPCC report that we are not on the right path. Uh, so all of it's necessary. I want to underscore that. So we are rounding out on our episode time, though. Uh, Brandon, I want to have you bring us home. You know, we talked about a lot of the play-by-play in, in D.C. right now. What do you think is missing from the current conversation? Again, there's a lot of policies on the table. Some will make it, some won't. But broadly, what do you think maybe we're not hearing enough about? I made my little point there. What is yours? I think there's a couple of things. One is when we passed the Recovery Act, there's $90 billion broadly for clean energy and trying to move that money quickly. $90 billion? That's all? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the old days, right? We weren't dealing with trillions. Um, the challenge will be moving that much money. Uh, you want to get the political benefit of it too for the midterms where people are feeling it in their day-to-day -day life. So moving that amount of money without 
you know, having corruption and waste. We did a great job of that with the Recovery Act. By the way, Joe Biden oversaw that. He was the sheriff put in charge of the Recovery Act, so he has experience with mm-hmm. this. But I think, you know, trying to move that money very efficiently um, and quickly, uh, but without corruption and waste will be something that will be uh, something to watch. Uh, and then I think just on the other part of it, you know, we talked a little bit about some of the macro stuff, but I am heartened that 19 senators have come uh, to vote for infrastructure. A large part of that being Republican senators. Yeah. Yeah. Republican senators voting for, you know, a hundred billion dollars plus in climate. Uh, But I am still, I think that we need to modernize some of our government structure. I still feel like we um, have a radical minority that is dictating too much of the policy in this country on paralyzing things because of some of the designs, uh, you know, with the, with the Senate, uh, with gerrymandering, there's voter suppression happening, you know, all across the country at the state level. And so I think we need more innovation on our government, you know, structure. I mean, think about what Shane had to describe in the course of this episode. If you were teaching a class in like another country about how American democracy works to pass a piece of legislation. You're like, well, there's this thing called the filibuster. And then there's like, to get around that, there's a reconciliation. And then you have a, a, a parliamentarian that gets to decide. Like, <laughs> how does that sound like a functioning democracy? What happened to I'm just a bill on <laughs> capital? Yeah, I hear you. Right? I mean, this is no way to run a railroad, it seems to me, where, you know, we're trying to, you know, account for this minority uh, that has been paralyzing us in, in, in many ways. And I think there's more consensus in this country around things like climate and healthcare uh, and COVID and dealing with the vaccine. But but it is this minority that has outsized political power because of the structure of the government. Well, we will put a pin in that discussion. Uh, clearly, we could dig into any of these topics uh, and create independent episodes on each of them. And we're going to unpack a lot more of it. And so those of you listening, please send us your feedback. We are on Twitter at P-O-L-I underscore climate, poly underscore climate. We want to hear from you there. And of course, if you haven't subscribed to the show, please do that. Political Climate is available wherever you get podcasts. Apple Podcasts, run Stitcher, Spotify. Hit subscribe, follow along, leave us a comment there. We love your reviews. That's super helpful. It is awesome to be back on the air with you guys. We're not yeah, going to end. fun. Yeah. <laughs> got a lot of good things planned uh, for the next couple episodes, too. Absolutely. We're not going to end with our Say Something Nice segment that we used to. We have to come up with a new one, I think, given our new focus of the show. Uh, so I'll just leave with a thank you uh, to both of you. Shane, excellent uh, explanations, Professor. Oh, stop it. And uh, we'll leave it there. Thanks to all for listening. Tune in again in the next two weeks for the next episode of Political Climate. Thanks again, and until next time.